0: read the first three verses again, then I want to pray, and then we'll just dive into Jonah this morning. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil, their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Let me pray. Father, we recognize this morning that you are an infinite, holy God, who yours ways are not our ways, your wisdom is far above our wisdom. And so we would ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would give us the ability to understand your word in a way that impacts us at the core of our our hearts and most of all we pray that you would lead us to Jesus the greater Jonah today so that we that our hearts might be moved not only to see our salvation but to see our calling to live for you in Jesus name amen yesterday i got the opportunity to s- speak to my neighbor my neighbor is an atheist and one of the most loving amazing people on our, in our neighborhood and we always get into these amazing conversations and so as we were talking about gardening, she's the gardening guru, and so if I ever have a question, I get to go to my neighbor, and she knows the answer of how my, and tells me why my things are dying. So one of the things that, that struck me is, is one of the greatest struggles that you can have with the book of Jonah is, and people get hung up on, is a man being in the belly of a whale for three days and three nights. Like, for her, it's just like, that's impossible, and, and depending on your view on that will change how you view the whole book of Jonah. So is it a fairy tale? or is it a historical fact like that right so so if you, if you if you believe don't believe in the miraculous, then there's a lot of impossibility with with the premise of some of the premise of the story, which the whale part is actually really small in the overall scheme of the story. and so my, my question was is, This morning is, is, well, how do we know whether this is historical or is it allegorical? Is it a fairy tale or is it fact? And so if you go to Matthew chapter 12, Jesus speaks about Jonah and he says to this, he says this, then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answer Jesus saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you, but he answers them, an evil, adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So remember, this is Jesus, who we believe is God come in the flesh, and he says this about Jonah, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, referring to when Jesus would die and raise, be raised again from the dead. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with, his genera- with this generation and condemn it, for they will. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So this morning, if you believe that Jesus is risen from the dead, then believing that a man was in a whale for three days and three nights and got puked out on the shore, or maybe he died and God raised him, for, we don't really know, it, it's not such a big stretch if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus. So the the bigger question becomes, do you believe who Jesus is, right? That's, that's the question. So if you do believe in that, and I know many of you here this morning, then then the stretch of... Seeing that this is historical and not a fairy tale is not such a big leap, but for some it is very difficult, and so we must be very cautious because it is a miracle, I believe, to to believe that Jesus is raised from the dead, and so it is a miracle for you to believe that Jonah was in a whale for three days and three nights, or a sea creature, or whatever it was, we don't really know. So if you have faith in Christ this morning even at the smallest little sliver that you believe that God came in the flesh that he died and he rose again then the story of Jonah is for you and I hope you'll be encouraged through it one of the things that I found as I start reading and studying through scripture more is that being a Gentile a white person (laughs) and not a Jew we don't get the gravity of some of what is said So if you were a Jew hearing this being read, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and Jonah was a prophet to the Israelites, to the Jewish people, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. You would be absolutely shocked. This is impossible. You'd actually be appalled at that phrase. Because as a Jewish person... You believe that the prophets that God sent, the prophets who spoke the words of God to God's people, were for God's people. So as soon as you heard this as a Jewish person, you would be wondering, is God abandoning us? Right? Is God leaving us because now he's going over here? And so they wouldn't be too happy about this little book of Jonah here. And that's what gives us a little bit of insight of maybe why Jonah didn't actually want to go to the Ninevites because if you remember Jonah and any prophet most of the prophets who went to God's people God's people didn't listen to them very rarely And so here's Jonah who's been speaking to God's people that God's people are rebellious they're always turning their backs falling into idolatry and now they're hearing that God is sending their prophet to the most wicked people, to Nineveh. And when I mean wicked, I mean wicked. We, we don't really even have a context to understand how great and wicked Nineveh was. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. It would have been that place that if you went to, it would be complete opulence. You think like the, the Taj Mahal or something, these great religious, well, Nineveh was profound in its structure. The most powerful man at that time on the planet lived there and he sat on his throne there. His kingdom was there, the king of Assyria. Some people believe that the city itself was 48 square miles in size. So Royston to Campbell River and a little bit farther, 48 square miles wide. It had a wall 100 feet tall all around this 48 miles, 100 feet tall and wide enough for three chariots. Within that wall of 48 miles circumference of the, of the city, there was 1,500 towers, 200 feet tall. You just get the, the, the size of it. We can't comprehend it today. At the very end of the book, it ends in a really bizarre way where God or, or Jonah is. Jonah wrote the book of Jonah, and he says there's 120 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. He's talking about babies, He's talking about infants. There's 120,000 infants and cattle. So they figure there was 2 million plus people that lived within this. It's huge. The other side of it. So it's a great city. But the other part is it's a wicked city, an evil city. Well, what do I mean by that? And that's what makes it shocking that g- the God of Israel would want to warn Nineveh. That he would send his prophets so that Somehow God would relent of his judgment and impending doom and relent from destroying the cruelest and most violent and wicked people of the time. And so the, the, the Jewish people would have seen these people do not deserve the grace and mercy of God. So what do I mean by, by wicked? Listen to some of the things that happened here. The Assyrian kings often recorded the results of their military victories, gloating of whole plains littered with corpses and of cities burned completely to the ground. This was all about power and expanding their kingdom. They didn't care how they got it. The emperor at the time is well known for depicting torture, dismembering, and decapitations of enemy in grisly detail on large stone relief panels. Assyrian history is as gory and blood-curdling a history as we know to this date. After capturing enemies, the Assyrians would typically cut off their legs and one arm, leaving the other arm in hand so they could shake the victim's hand in mockery as he was dying. They forced friends and family members to parade with the decapitated heads of their loved ones, elevated on poles. They pulled out prisoners' tongues and stretched their bodies with ropes so that they could be flayed, skinned alive, and those skins would be displayed on the city walls. They burnt adolescents alive. Those who desu- des- survived the destruction of their cities were fated to endure cru- to endure cruel and violent forms of slavery. The Assyrians have been called a terrorist state. The empire had begun exacting heavy tribute from Israel, so the Assyrian Empire at the time of Jonah was beginning to attack the Israelite people during the reign of King Jehu, and they continued to threaten the Jewish northern kingdom throughout the lifetime of Jonah. In 722 BC, it finally invaded and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel and its capital, Samaria. Yet it was this nation that was the object of God's missionary outreach. So you can see why it would be so shocking calling the prophet Jonah to go to this Assyrian people so that they would not be destroyed. You you wouldn't like hearing what you hear. See, there's a chance that God, by sending Jonah, would, would somehow not destroy them. But how could a good God give a nation... Like this, the Assyrians, the merest or smallest or even the slimmest chance of experiencing mercy. Why on earth would God be helping the enemies of his people? So the question becomes, why does Jonah flee for for Tarshish or to Tarshish? If you and I look at it through through our human reason, if you put yourself in the place of Jonah and God called you to go to the Assyrians or ISIS or some brutal people, what would your response to be? Why would you flee? And I think there's a lot of reasons that we can look at that. The first one is maybe Jonah's afraid for his life. Would that not be reasonable? Right? Like, I'm, I'm not going there. I don't want to die. But, but listen, I'm, I, I don't think that's the reason. I think Jonah was very willing to die in his call to live for God. And the reason why I say that is that the life of a prophet to God's people, you always lived on the edge and risk of your life. <laughs> this is what it says in Matthew 23. Jesus is speaking, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. So Jonah, he knew his life was on the line his whole time from his own people because they killed the Jewish people would kill the prophets that God would send to him. But we also see in the book of Jonah itself, in Jonah chapter 1, verse 12, he says, as the storm starts raging more and more, he says to the sailors who are with him, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will be quiet for you. He's willing to die. So is he fleeing because he's afraid to die? Or later on in chapter Four verses 3 and 8, two times he's, he says this as God's mercy is extended. He says, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And he says it again in verse, four, uh, verse 8 of chapter 4, the same thing. So, so is Jonah fleeing to Tarshish because he's f- afraid to die? I don't think so. I, I don't think the word of God sends that message. So, so why does he not want to go? Well, maybe he's fearing he doesn't have the resources necessary Maybe he doesn't have the energy. God, I just, that's just too much for me. I, I can't take that on. Sometimes that's what I say, right? When God asks me to do something. I don't know if I have the resources for that. Yet I don't think that's the case here either. Nineveh was about 500 to 750 miles away from Jonah's hometown. But yet he chose to go on a journey to Tarshish, which was 2,500 miles away. Some commentators say he didn't actually pay a fare for a boat; he actually chartered a boat. That's why he's not up on deck. He's actually—I've chartered this. I'll do what I'm going to. I'm going to bed. You guys get me to where. So it wasn't resources. It wasn't time. It wasn't energy. So, so why does he not want to go? Well, another thing I thought about. Well, maybe, maybe at this point God's called him to do something, and he just doesn't have enough faith. Maybe he just doesn't love God enough. Maybe, maybe he's, he's not, he doesn't really trust God at the core. Now, there's some truth to that, but yet, listen to what, and this is why I wanted us to read the whole book of Jonah today, because he makes a, a very important statement for you and I to understand that gives us some insight of why he's fleeing. And he says this in Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And so, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. That's after God relented. And he was angry because God didn't destroy them. In fact, he didn't. And they turned to God. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to go to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Wow. He doesn't want to go to the Ninevites because he doesn't want God to pour out his grace and his mercy and his love and relent from pouring out judgment on them. So in Jonah's having this, this, this conversation in his mind, and he's looking at these people, and he's looking at their, the way that they're living and all the atrocious things that they're doing, and he goes, you don't deserve the grace, the mercy, and the love of God. And he goes the other way. We see that Jonah isn't fleeing because he doesn't have a strong belief or faith in God, but actually it's quite the opposite. Have you ever thought about that in the book of Jonah? He actually believes that God is gracious, that God is merciful, that God is loving. But that shouldn't be placed on the enemies of God's people or the enemies of God on Gentiles. Remember, Gentiles were seen as completely unclean to Jewish people. So Jonah here, he's wrestling with the justice of God, of what's fair, He wanted a God that would fit into his image of what wisdom and what justice and what the concept of justice and love and grace looked like. Do you have that struggle? Right? Joan had seen God's compassion. He'd seen his mercy and he'd seen the grace of God because time and time again, God's wayward people were not destroyed by this holy God. They would be chasing after the cultures around them. They'd be giving themselves to the idols of the culture around them. They'd be worshiping false gods, giving their lives, sacrificing their children to these false gods. And God, time and time again, would relent from destroying them. So he saw it in action. And even though Jonah knew and had experienced and witnessed this grace, mercy, and love and compassion of God, who was always relenting from destroying his own people, that's precisely why he didn't go. see, Jonah felt that he would be letting his own people down. He'd be selling out, what would they think of me? But part of the problem was his view of God and the, and the glory of God and the great grace and mercy of God was way too small. He wanted a God to be who he wanted God to be, made in his own image, that love that showed grace based on how he thought it should go as a human, a finite creature. And he deemed that the Assyrians did not deserve it. And so his view of God was, was too narrow, it was too small. But in another way, he really did understand the mercy, grace, and love of God. What a tension! But it was warped. He didn't trust in the justice of God. Well, they don't deserve your grace, God, they deserve destruction. And in, in thinking that way, Jonah is making the assumption that he is worthy of the grace of God. You see this, the struggle, right? Soon as I start saying, well, they're not, then I'm saying I am. And as soon as that starts to happen, I've changed what God's grace and mercy is at its core. And that's what Jonah was doing. He had, he had changed the, the real understanding. His understanding of God's grace had become skewed that he, he somehow deserved it, but he didn't. And so he disobeys God's call in his life. And, and I think what he's trying to do here is he's trying to get away, get away from the reminder of God's grace to him. And if he can just get away from all those influence of God's grace, mercy, and his love, then he knows it's not. he, he doesn't have to go. So so listen how God describes his choosing of the Israelite people. In Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 8, this is really important for for us to hear. It says, God God says to his people, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Holy means to be set apart. I've set you apart. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. So what made God choose the Israelites? Well, he goes on to explain that. It's not because you were more in number, strong, a great nation than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all people, most insignificant. So why? But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. He loves you because he loves you, not because you're lovable. He's talking about grace and mercy here. The Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery slavery out of the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Jonah, as a Hebrew, as a Jew, is won by the sovereign grace, mercy, and love of God. Jonah has been called out. The people of God have been called out from all the other people, not because there was something in them, but because God is loving. And he set his love on Jonah and God's people, the Jewish people. And so Jonah says in chapter 1, verse 9 of Jonah, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, that's who's called him out. The God who spoke and created all things. The God who still speaks today and sustains the universe by the word of his power. The God who chose Jonah and spoke to Jonah, calling him to go on mission. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. It's actually more accurate to say the word of the Lord is to Jonah. And that word is binding, it's creating, it's sustaining, it's a word that compels. In Isaiah 55:11, it says this, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Joan, I want you to go to Nineveh. The story of Jonah is about God pursuing a man's heart until that man's heart is willing to accept God's call on his life. The whole story of Jonah is about God's pursuing grace, God's pursuing mercy, and love for those whom he loves. You cannot outrun it. You cannot escape it. When I look back over my life, There are so many times where I've gone to Tarshish. And I remember I was sharing one distinctly this morning. When I was in my, I guess I'd have been 18 or 19, I decided I would abandon my faith. And so I decided that I was just going to live the ways of the world. And so I was driving recklessly in a car while intoxicated and crashed my car. Ended up in the back of a police car. For whatever reason, I never had a breathalyzer, wasn't caught, just got a ticket. And yet, that moment of my rebellion and the destruction of the car that I'd worked so hard my very first car moved me to go back to Bible school. Because God was pursuing me in my rebellion. That's how he works. There's a commentator that I've really enjoyed reading, Jack Salul, and he speaks of Jonah and he says this, God's election is is never a choice which stops with the choice. When God picks out a man or a woman and speaks to him or her, it is to engage them in a work, in an action. If God and when God chooses a man or a woman, it's in order that they may serve in the work that God has undertaken. A lot of times we think of of Christianity as being saved, which is true. But it's more than that. It's about being called to God's work. Those two are inseparable. And that's the struggle. We find ourselves moving away from God's call on our life. That's what Jonah's struggle is. He's not struggling with his belief in God and the mercy and the grace of God. That's not his struggle. He believes in God. But he's not comfortable with the call of God. That God has placed on his heart, that he's commanded him to, and he's struggling with the work that God is undertaking and calling him to undertake. Jonah was chosen by God, first to be a child of God, but then to be a prophet. Do you see that? He's called Jonah to be a son of God. But that son now has a responsibility in the father's house to be on the mission of the father. And that's what he's wrestling with. He's been called by the sovereign God of the universe. And then you see God through this whole story, sovereignly working in the natural things. A storm. Through a, f- a fish. These are, these are naturally created things all around us. And we're going to look at that more to come in the weeks to come. Because the Lord's word has gone to and Jonah and the Lord's word will be accomplished. Now, the good news about the whole story is that Jonah never, ever really does it with a lot of joy in his heart. And if you want to read it, there's, it's broken up into, into four, four chapters. If, you, if, you're, if you're familiar with the story of the prodigal son, the first two chapters are really about a son who's been given a great, great graces by the father, and then he decides to go and live his own way, spend it on himself. The second part, the last two chapters are about the older brother. Fine, I'll obey you, father right? They're both bad sons in that sense. And Jonah, it's it's this parallel of, of the prodigal sons and the pursuit of a loving father for his boys. And if you read it through and you start thinking it, it's incredible the similarities. Jonah is called into the service of God. He declines to go. He pushes back from God's call in his life. He rejects God's word. He rejects God's call. He does not But yet, God does not reject his chosen prophet or his child. Fine, Jonah, you're out of here. He doesn't do that. And he doesn't do that with you or me either. For the love of God has been set on Jonah. And not only does Jonah decline, but what does he do and why does he do that? Why does Jonah flee from the presence of the Lord? Some commentators believe that he, he really chartered this boat and decide to go in the opposite direction. But yet twice it's mentioned, away from the presence of the Lord. What does that mean? What does it mean? Does, does it mean that, that, that Jonah believes that he can get away from the presence of God? He's just he's told him that my God is the God of the heaven and the earth. Does it mean that he thinks he can find a corner of this planet where God isn't? What does it mean that he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord? You see, what I love about the book of Jonah as well, it's so unlike our world today and social media and all these different things because he's really showing how terrible he is. Jonah's writing this about himself. He's not the hero. He's not the shiny figure. God is the hero of the whole thing that Jonah's writing here. And so there's an honesty to this. There's this... This authenticity, he's he's really wanting to show how great and loving and amazing God is. And so this book isn't about Jonah and the obedience of a good man, but rather about the pursuing grace, mercy, and, and love of God towards his people who don't deserve it. And so twice it says he flees from the presence of the Lord. We know that Jonah actually doesn't believe he can get outside of the Lord's presence in one sense. In Psalm 139, it says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Jonah says, while he's in the belly of the whale, I called out to the Lord out of my bitter distress and he answered me, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. So he doesn't really believe he can escape God's presence. So what does it mean he's fleeing the presence of the Lord? What does that mean? Here's what I think it means simply. Jonah is trying to remove himself and get away from all the things that would remind him of God's grace, of God's mercy, of God's steadfast steadfast love and compassion. Why would he do that? See, Jonah was fleeing from the promised land. Well, the promised land is where the, the people of God were. The promised land is where the temple of God was. The promise of land is where all the interactions that people, God's people had with God and each other around God. Remember, there's he's running away from the presence of the Lord. Well, where did the presence of the Lord dwell for God's people? At that time, where was the presence of the Lord dwelt? Where did it dwell? Tell me, the temple. And what happened around the temple? Well, there's all these sacrifices that reminded them of who God was and who who they were of His grace. There was these feasts. There was all these holidays. There was the Passover. There was the Day of Atonement. All these feasts that are mentioned in the Old Testament, where God relented and He delivered them out of the hand of Egypt and He spared His people who were all under the blood of the lamb. Remember, they're told to flee and his wrath was going to pass over. Take a lamb, put it on the doorpost of your house and if if, if that blood has covered it, then I will pass over you. And God did and God's people were delivered and that points to Jesus Christ on the cross, to grace, to the mercy, to the love of God, delivering them out of bondage to Egypt. What grace? They didn't do anything. They didn't deserve it. So what does it mean that Jonah is fleeing from the presence of the Lord? Well, Jonah is seeking to remove himself of all the things in his life so that he wouldn't be confronted afresh with the grace, with the mercy, with the love, with the compassion, with the patience with the power and with the glory of this great and holy God who has loved him because he's loved him. And so he's fleeing to Tarshish. I think every one of us here knows that very personally. I think Jonah's story is my story. I think it's your story and our struggle. It's not that we don't believe in God or even love God. But we know that if we we really put ourselves in the place where we're reminded of who he really is, then we might just have to change or make a course correction. And to be honest, I think sometimes we just don't want to. And that's our struggle. Jonah's struggle is my struggle. So you can see why it's been so meaningful to me. As God has been revealing all the places in my heart See, the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, he knew that when he was surrounded by that, it would compel him to go on the mission of God. Jonah took really decisive action in disobeying God's call in his life, and I'm pretty sure none of you have (laughs) ever chartered a boat that's just started shooting across the sea, right? And And I think it's a lot more subtle than Jonah And it's not that Jonah didn't love God or believe that God was great. Actually, we know that. He's told us that he believed in those things. In fact, Jonah had spent all his life being really obedient to God, being a, a good boy, obeying God, doing what God had called him to do. Even though there was little results, the people never really seemed to respond to him. And now God's calling him to go to a wicked nation. Is God abandoning his people? Is Jonah abandoning his own people? Is God abandoning the Jewish people for a new people who would obey him? Has God stopped caring? We feel these things. Is God breaking his covenant with his people? Jonah is having, like you and I, we have these existential crises in our hearts. Because we're having a really hard time understanding, God, this doesn't make sense to me if you love me and i wonder sometimes that we have the same struggle as Jonah by god and by his grace he calls us to himself that's the good news of the gospel of jesus christ and we see See, Christ, that he's loved us because he's loved us. There's all these amazing words in scripture that seem to scare us at times. Words like he calls, he elects, he predestines, he chooses. They make us uncomfortable. That's the pursuit of God. That shouldn't make us uncomfortable. Why do you love God? Because he first loved you. He, by a divine act, has done something to set you apart. He's stirred in your hearts. He's caused you. He's brought you to life. Once you were not God's people, but now you are God's people. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you have received mercy through the living and abiding word of God. In 1 Peter 1, it says this, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. It goes forth and accomplishes what he sends it for. And this is the word, and this is the good news that was preached to you. You've been made, if you believe in God this morning, even as a sliver, God has made you spiritually alive to him, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of work so that no one may boast. It's never about the size of our faith. It's about the greatness of the God who even that sliver of faith is in. right That's the beauty of the gospel. Uh, Kathy, we're sport was here last Sunday, and we were talking, she said something years ago, and it's always been so powerful to me. We as Christians do not come to church because we think Because we have it together, we come because we know we don't. And we're in need of God's grace. It's miraculous this morning if you have a sliver of faith in God or a curiosity about God. See, salvation is God's deliverance of us from the bondage and the penalty of sin, from the power of sin. From being enslaved to the things of this world and brought into slavery to Christ. But this deliverance, this salvation isn't just, that's not the end of it. It's a putting you on a new mission. A new purpose in life. God's given you a new calling, a new reason for living, a new purpose to respond to the call of God on your life. And that's to live for His glory, even when it doesn't make sense. And the word of the Lord comes to us and it says, Go. Just think about right after Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it says, for we are his workmanship. We are, the, we, are, we are made by God. He's the potter, we are the clay. He is the, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for, for what? Salvation? For good works. Yes, for salvation. <laughs> Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What is God calling you to? 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore if anyone is in Christ he or she is a new creation. The old is gone behold the new has come. The great commission in Matthew 28 Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and behold I'm with you always to the very end of the age. It's not that Jonah did not believe in God for salvation but he was struggling with the call to go to entrust himself with God's call on his life. And like Jonah, we can find ourselves at times fleeing from the presence of the Lord. I'm pretty sure that it looks a bit different than Jonah. So what does it look like? What does it look like when you're fleeing from the presence of the Lord? Well, I think there's seasons that we go through where it's more more regular than others and I think it's really subtle. Sometimes I think we don't even realize the direction that we're going and the effect it's having on our hearts. We don't even realize that we're in the boat moving away from the presence of the Lord. I'm not saying that we can get away from His presence either. In fact, as you and I will see through the book of Jonah, God's word that he never abandons but always pursues those whom he saved and called to his service. For the work he started, he carries on to completion, to completion. For it is God, Philippians 2, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But like Jonah, we know at times when we're not embracing God's call in our lives when we're not embracing his mission for our lives giving ourselves into his service his kingship his lordship we know when we are we know when we're pushing the lord away and most times it's very passive we busy ab- ourselves with doing things that don't remind us of who we are in Christ and what i mean by busy we watch netflix that's me guilty we just busy ourselves doing things hobbies we busy ourselves with things that don't cause us to, to consider who Jesus is and what He's done, whether it's sports or work or whatever it is. We stop engaging in some of the spiritual practices that Scripture encourage us to take up, such as prayer or Christian community, the Word of God. And yet we know that we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good and gracious. Merciful, loving, and a of disaster. In fact, we believe in that. But the more that we're confronted with it, the more it changes us. And so sometimes I, like Jonah, you, like Jonah, we, we find ourselves fleeing from the presence of the Lord because we know, we know that if we encounter him afresh, if we hear his word afresh, we will have to change and make a course direction. And sometimes I think I just don't want to. How often do you flee? How often do you not choose God's desired path for you or myself? And yet how often if we really reflect, we see God's pursuit of us through friends or family or circumstances because we are his workmanship. He's the potter. We are the clay. And he's not done with us yet because he's gracious. And he's compassionate and he's merciful and he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he loves you. And he loves me. And so as we read the book of Jonah, we, we can't not but be drawn to the greater Jonah, which is Jesus. You see, you are Nineveh. I'm Nineveh. And Jesus left his glorious home at the command of God the Father, and he has come to me. He's come to you. We were the enemies of God. We weren't obeying him. We didn't even care. We didn't even desire to. And he traveled way more than 500 miles. <laughs> he left his glory on high. And he came in the form of a baby. The word became flesh. And he entered into time and space right into our communities. And he threw himself into the wrath of God. Just like Jonah would do. The greatest act of substitutionary true love. He gave your his life for your life. And not because we deserved it. See, the blood of the lamb was sprinkled on the doorposts of your hearts through the crucifixion of Christ. Not your blood, but his. Not because we deserve it, not because we earned it, not because he saw anything good in us, but because he's a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting of disaster. When we come to the table, it's a reminder that Christ is pursuing you. It's an invitation to his presence. It's an invitation to be reminded of his devouring, unwavering, unweary love that he pours out on you by his grace. And he will continue to do that until you and I have completely given our lives to God's call and our lives to go. You, you and I cannot outrun God's grace. Because he's our father, we're his children. And he's poured his love into our hearts by his Holy Spirit. Now here's, here's a really practical thing. As I was reflecting on this this morning. Who are the Ninevites in your life this morning? Who are the person or persons in your life that you are really struggling to forgive? In fact, you might even even feel that they don't deserve the mercy, grace, and love, and kindness of God. Who are those in your life that you're withholding your affections from because maybe they've hurt you? Who are you struggling to love this morning? Who this morning are you denying help when you know that there's a need? That you could meet. But you look at their life and you go, well, they've got themselves into this position. They can get themselves out. You see, when you, when you, when you read this and you begin to get, God, what, do you, what does this mean for me? There was all sorts of people that started coming to my mind. And realizing that the issue is I don't actually believe the grace, the mercy, and the love of God that he's shown me. Because when I really grasp that, there's no way I would want to withhold that from anybody else, right? And as we're going to see as we go through the book of Jonah. I think there could be possibly a little bit of a challenge to the modern day church and the way that we interact with the world. Because we're all in the same boat. And my, my heart's prayer this morning for you as we go through this book is that God would move us from indifference from sleeping in the boat to getting up out of the boat and start rowing with our neighbors and the things that weigh us down because we're all weighed down with things. And so that's my hope for you. As we partake of communion this (coughs) morning, it is my reminder and it is God saying to you, do this in remembrance of me. It's calling you. God is calling you through these symbolic things of the, the wine and the bread, the juice and the bread. As a reminder that there's a God who loves you and who pursues you and who will never leave you or forsake you. And He will move incredible things on this planet to get your attention and that God would give us hearts to listen and to see that in fact He is pursuing us. So this side is wine and bread, this side is juice and bread. If you have a love for Jesus this morning and it doesn't have to be perfect if there are sins in your life, things that you know that you're in rebellion against God, I would just encourage you to take a few minutes and ask for God's forgiveness. That you would pour out your heart to Him in confession. And then you would go and you would just freely take of His grace towards you. The wine or the juice is a reminder of the shed blood of Christ. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. It's a reminder that true love is a love that Love that gives itself up for another person. And also this morning we were reminded that the bread is a call of God bringing us together through his body to become a people. A people called God's people. Who live our lives in, in communion with one another. And try or try to. <laughs> But he's placed a desire in us. And so we desire to do that. And so I just invite you to come to the table. Let me pray for you this morning. And then may God bless you as you eat and drink. And may he strengthen your faith as you do that today. Father, thank you so much for. This amazing story of a man and his struggle and his tension. In the midst of his loving you and knowing that he's loved by you and yet struggling with that trying to make sense of what is it, how does that affect us in everyday life. And God, we do fail so much, and we find ourselves fleeing. So God, I just pray this morning that you would remind us that, that we're loved by you. And as we drink, as we eat, through this, comu- this communion, through the wine and the bread, that we would be reminded of your great love for us. So God, help us to see your grace, mercy, and love more clearly this morning. And that it would draw us back to be on mission for you, in service to you. All in response to the grace and the work that you have done on our behalf. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.